Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. At last, I have it. I've spent years looking for this old wooden chest that contains the letters of Sarah Childress Polk, wife of the 11th president of the United States, a devout Presbyterian. As first lady, she banned dancing, card games, and hard liquor at presidential functions and never attended horse races or the theater. But we historians believe she also played a major role in shaping the policies and alliances of the president. This should tell us so much more. Look at this one to Martin Van Buren. My dearest Martin, I so enjoyed our Sunday afternoon revels. The two families must have had a picnic. Martin Jr. was certainly frisky and came back for seconds. Hmm, I guess kids were big eaters even back then. And when you... I can't make out this word. Perpetrated? Fenestrated? Me, you were like one of those naughty tomcats who enjoy the moonlight on our rooftops. I hope you noticed my meows of pleasure. I'm going to put this one away. Here's a letter to Franklin Pierce. My Randy Frankie, I do not believe I understood the phrase manifest destiny until last night when, with the vigorous and precise movement of your hips, you... I can't believe this. The most virtuous first lady in the history of the Republic was a secret sex monster? These correspondences have the potential to reshape our understanding of an entire era. As a historian, I have one primary responsibility. Dear Daily Mail, you think the stuff you printed about George Clooney was hot? Have I got some letters for you, but only if the price is right. This may take a while, so enjoy our scramble about LeBron James, Warren Harding, and a song about a ticking biological clock. And now, mourning the death of Archie, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I just found out about that as I went on the air. That's supposedly Archie, I mean the comic book Archie, who I think we did our first show we talked about Archie. And here, it's almost our fifth anniversary, and Archie apparently is, has, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> Archie has died. He's been shot. He took a bullet for somebody? This is, I can't. I'm amazed I'm even on the air. I should be lying down in a dark room. All right, so uh, we have a great scramble for you today, and many of the things that were alluded to in the introduction will be touched upon later today. Uh, That would include, of course, the letters from Warren G. Harding to one of his mistresses, and also we'll be talking a little bit later uh, about um, a kind of standoff between the Daily Mail, a scurrilous British tabloid, and George Clooney, and what its actual implications are for kind of global journalism. I mean, we're not going to just climb down in there in the muck with the Daily Mail. We have a higher purpose. We always do. Uh, Starting off here is our super guest today today is Anna Sale. She's the host and managing editor of Death, Sex, and Money, a bi-weekly podcast at WNYC. It's available on iTunes at deathsexmoney.org. She's also a frequent fill-in host for the Brian Lehrer Show and the Leonard Lopate Show. We're excited to have her here. She's also, of course, a product of the uh, John Dankosky public radio farm system, uh, which is uh, molded superstars all over the country, including Anna. Welcome back to your old home, Anna. To sale. Thank you, Colin. And I'm quite sure I would never 
have been a super guest were it not for John Dankosky. Well, uh, we all owe something to John Dankosky. Uh, <laughs> and spelling it all out would take way too much time. So I, I was thrilled that you wanted to talk about LeBron and, you know, obviously not necessarily his basketball impact, but kind of the way he decided to tell this story uh, of his decision to leave Miami, which he kind of picked out, you know, at a moment it was rising up as an American third coast for flash and entertainment and, and media attention and go back whence he came, uh, a boy from Akron, Ohio, heading back to the Cleveland franchise where he started out. So uh, so what does this mean to you? Well, I just love this story because I think a lot about home and where home is for me and, and the ways that, that home and, and where we feel like we belong can become so infused with really strong emotions as we saw when LeBron James left Cleveland. I'm, I'm from West Virginia, which is a state where a lot of people leave. And the people who stay have this sense of, you know, why are we not good enough for you? And there's this, you know, resentfulness about the people who choose to leave the state. And then the people who leave feel that pull back and then just kind of don't know what to do with it. So I related to this personally. And, and I just thought the way LeBron James handled it this time, his announcement, of course, not with the flash of a big press conference live on ESPN, but with a personal reflection uh, that he did in, in conjunction with a Sports Illustrated journalist, but posted it on the website on Friday about why this decision felt right for him, for his family, for him, for going back home. And and I think he did it quite beautifully. I thought it was really honest and, and reflective, which is not what you often hear from some of the, you know, most famous stars in the NPA. I agree. I was intrigued by the sort of old-fashioned uh, storytelling format of the essay. Uh, as you say, uh, in the 2010, uh, he had this live ESPN special called The Decision, which um, <laughs> uh, was all about his decision to sign with the Heat, but it was all revealed there live. It was, to his everlasting credit, I suppose, broadcast from the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich, Connecticut. It raised $2.5 million for that charity and an additional $3.5 million from advertising revenue that was donated to other charities. Notwithstanding that, though, people really did detect in that a level of self-involvement and grandiosity that, that seemed to also fit with this choice of moving from a fairly mm-hmm. drab Rust Belt City to the heat and flash of Miami. And not just grandiosity, but insensitivity. Like, how could this guy, this boy who'd grown up in Akron, gone on to be one of the proudest products of Northeast Ohio, how could he look to the people where he, that he played for in Cleveland and and do this with such flash? I mean, it's particularly heartbreaking, I think, when you're from a part of the country that struggled. And and in West Virginia, I know we love to to just, you know, list all of the people who've been successful who have ties to the state because it's in some ways a way to answer that feeling of inadequacy or inferiority or why are we a place that, that doesn't have the respect that the rest of the country gets. And, and that's why I think it was so insulting and sad for Cleveland fans and for people in Akron when he left four years ago. But the way he flipped it, the way LeBron flipped it by characterizing his move to Cle- his move to Miami as something he needed to do. And if he had to do it again, he would do the same thing. And he compared it to college, to mm-hmm. four years away when he grew up, when he accomplished some things that he needed to accomplish. But now he's ready to come home. I mean, that that 
that that works for people. That that works for people in Northeast Ohio, I imagine, because he because they get that. You need to go away. You need to see what you can see. But that idea of home is important, and now's the time when I'm prioritizing that. It's just a great story. Yeah. I, after I heard your or read your comments about that, I went back and reread the essay. Um, and and the word that popped into my mind was, was Bildungsroman. You know that term for the coming of age novel. Or of course, there is a famous ah, famous. Bildung- that was not the term that that flipped <laughs> into my head. I have to be honest, Colin. Well, well there is a there is a famous Bildungsroman by uh, Philip Roth called Goodbye Columbus, which is just uh-huh. you know maybe 150 200 miles away from Akron. But um, but you know, I do feel we're all trying to tell our life story, right? Uh, to a certain degree, we're trying to to live a life that that's worthy of telling, and then to be able to tell that. That story, and I think he struggled a little bit to find the right narrative for himself. I mean, this—the decision to go to Miami didn't go over all that well. And in his time in Miami, it seemed so much about him, and he was constantly judged by whether he prevailed or failed. And and mm-hmm. and often when he would fail, it would be against a group of people who were more of a team. And somehow or other, the the drama of LeBron was always the drama of LeBron. Uh, you know, I mean, was he going to be good enough to pull his team? over the finish line in any given season, and he often was. But it goes back to something Mark Oppenheimer said uh, off-air last week on, on a show. He said, you know, he has, I guess his brother has this theory that everybody needs a nemesis. You know, mm-hmm. everybody, needs, everybody needs somebody who's just a, not somebody they hate, but somebody who's just a little bit better than they are, or almost as good as they are, somebody to make you push yourself a little bit or m- compare yourself against so that, you, you know, you vault over that next hurdle. And, and for LeBron, you know, it hasn't been a magic and bird kind of thing. It's like his nemesis kind of is himself and, and, and people's expectations of him or other teams that play more as a team than he does or than he's alleged to do. And I think he is looking for a way to tell his story. And as you say, he's found this very nice way of telling a story about caring about another place uh, and, and, and maybe championing that place and, and having that be his story. Yeah, I mean, and he, he did not, I mean, he really went for it. He's in, in Northeast Ohio, nothing is given, everything is earned. For You work for what you have. I'm ready to accept the challenge. I'm coming home. I mean, he just, you know, went right for those heartstrings in Northeast Ohio. And and then he, he also made the point that he knows he's going to have to be patient. He mentioned that it's a younger team and it's a new coach. And, and so I think that is exactly what you were saying, him saying, I'm ready to be a leader on a team and not just a star our player that everyone looks to to win the games. I want to be a mentor. I want to cultivate this team, nurture it, and I'm ready to put the work in, which is not the way we thought of LeBron James prior to this announcement last week. Once I uh, realized what your take was on all this, uh, Anna Sale, I felt as though I couldn't have this conversation with you without mentioning Thomas Wolfe, who wrote You Can't Go Home Again and Look Homeward Angel uh, in, in You Can't Go Home Again. He writes, but why had he always felt so strongly the magnetic pull of home? Why had he thought so so much about it and remembered it with such blazing accuracy if it did not matter and if this little town and the immortal hills around it was not the only home he had on earth. He did not know. All that he knew was that the years flow by like water and that one day men come home again. So, uh, and women, I, I would imagine, too. Do you ever fantasize about, yeah, I mean, obviously you're, you are headed for a public radio superstardom and, and podcasting uh, mega success. Do you ever fantasize about coming back to, to Wheeling, uh, West Virginia? Or I, I don't know where actually in West Virginia you're from. I just pulled that out of nowhere. Uh, you ever fantasize about going back to West Virginia and, and, and doing something for the place that still, I mean, 
it's it's enough home for you that you earlier in the conversation used we to refer to West Virginia. Do you ever think, well, maybe yeah. I'll go home someday? Well, I'm from Charleston, and and uh, absolutely. I mean, this is like something West Virginia, you just can't quite get it out of your rearview mirror. And you think about not only like what would it be like if I went home, but what is my obligation to this state? And, and what are ways that I continue can continue to show that I love my home and the place that I'm from, you know, because it's a place that, that could use some help, you know. And so right now in my life, that means that I focus my charitable giving in West Virginia because I feel like New York dollars go further in West Virginia than they do in New York City. Um, but then the question becomes, and I think this is probably something LeBron James may have thought about, it's like when you leave home and when you do things elsewhere and you, when you create a community in your new home, it's like what what would it be like can I go home again? You know, all mm-hmm. my sisters have fled to the winds and, and the place that I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. And my parents are there. But but I think that that's that pull of home is still there, even though, you know, it's a question of how much of it is it actually this place and how much of it is nostalgia that gets triggered when you get older. I think you're asking exactly the right question. I don't know what the answer is, but you're asking the right question. (laughs) Um, All right, we're going to transition from there. Um, Another great topic Anna Sale has picked uh, is a new Jenny Lewis song, uh, Just One of the Guys. Uh, Wolfie, why don't we just hear a a bit of Just One of the Guys, and then we'll talk about it. No matter how I try to be just one of the guys, there's a little something inside that won't let me. All right, we, we just played a, a clip from the middle of the song where Jenny uh, sort of tips her hand in case you didn't understand what this song was about. Let's uh, make sure absolutely that you absolutely do. So, um, Anacel, tell <laughs> us uh, why you picked this Jenny Lewis song to talk about. Well, I love that she wrote this song because I think of Jenny Lewis as this super hip, you know, indie rocker, the coolest girl in the room whenever she walks in. She was in the band Rilo Kylie with a bunch of dudes. Like she she's just that like really cool rock star who just seems like completely untouchable by, you know, the concerns of mere, you know, civilians. But this song it it just perfectly encapsulates the the way it encapsulates baby fever for women in their 30s in a way that you can't quite articulate what it is that you're feeling when you feel that biological clock ticking. You know it's there. You don't know quite what to do with it. But it's that, you know, she says she looks in the mirror. She's 38 years old and sees a lady without a baby. And not that that means she needs to have children, but it. I just like that it's a cool celebration of this experience that women go through, um, women who, who you know make it to that age and haven't had kids, and that question of, is this okay, that I just feel this pull, or is this a pull I need to respond to? And I like that it's a cool song that gets into that. The um, And I think I like the way she sets it up, too, the, the desire to be one of the guys. In other words, in her milieu, that means being one of all these other rock stars, but male rock stars don't really hear any particular, at least they don't hear that clock ticking. They may hear other clocks <laughs> ticking, but... 
So they're, they're not really sort of thinking, wow, do I need to stop doing this and focus on something else? Uh, I mean, presumably, anyway, they, at least biologically, they don't need to do that. I mean, as a matter of growth and life story, they may decide it's time to do some child rearing. But it really, really just is a different thing, right? She, she can't just relax and lay back and enjoy the ride of being a rock star without constantly asking herself that question. Yeah, and I think that she's – I like that she's just directly addressing it because it kind of – as a woman in my 30s, when you talk about that pull and trying to figure out what to do with it, it it can seem like you're just such a cliche. Like it's not interesting to talk about biological clocks if you're a woman. It's not hip. It's not cool. And and that Ginny Lewis is just saying like here's what makes me different from all these dudes on the tour bus with me. Like I feel this thing. And this is what sets me apart, and I try to explain it to them. But all these guys, I can't, I can't be just one of the guys. It's something that's a little bit different than I'm, I'm working through. Well, you know, uh, NSL, I've been known to force a through line where none exists. But I think we, <laughs> we, we could, without a lot of nudging, relate this to LeBron and his Bildungsroman. Because okay. Jenny Lewis also wrote fairly recently with a, guy, with a dude from Vampire Weekend uh, this song that aired on Girls last season. And it's at least nominally about taking too many drugs and winding up in the hospital. Uh, but even the title connects to the new song uh, because it's so much a whole so, uh, both songs are kind of a question about when am I me you know when when am I mm. the person I, I really ought to be so this uh, song is complete called completely not me we'll just hear a little bit of it All right, completely not me. Um, you know, listening to that and then listening to the song that, that you guided uh, us to, Anna Sale, I was thinking this is one of the things that our favorite uh, artists do, particularly our favorite musical artists. If we're going to live with them across the decades, they're going to, you know, kick all these signposts for us. And mm-hmm. I mean, for people of my generation, maybe Paul Simon is a guy who, you know, in, in decade after decade is going to raise a whole bunch of interesting life questions. And to me, these two songs together are kind of interesting. One of them is about, uh, it appears to be anyway, about this this night of total excess where you wind up in a hospital and things aren't so good and and you were completely not you but you're now you're going you're coming clean and then you know a year or so later you're also thinking wow maybe i need to stop doing this stuff and have a mm-hmm. kid you know yeah and i also think that that, that except you just played it started i could have died that night in mm. the ways that are you know when we have those flashes of our mortality and flashes of aging and that thing this all of this doesn't last forever it, it causes these big questions to come up. And that is the perfect segue to our third topic. Uh, the third topic you picked out involves the broadcaster Diane Rehm, who does a wonderful uh, public radio show, which we don't happen to air here uh, on this station, but it is uh, terrific. And occasionally I, I make a special effort to listen to it. Um, she does a very special kind of, of interview. Uh, but what is maybe a little less well known about her uh, is uh, her long marriage. I think she was married to, to, for 54 years uh, to, yeah. to, to one man. I'll let you kind of pick up the story from there. 
Well, this was one of those stories that you just, I saw it flicker past on Twitter and and then clicked on it and and knew nothing about what she was going through personally uh, while she's been hosting her show. Um, But it's an NBC News article that came out last week where she gave an interview and talked about the death of her husband uh, earlier this summer. Her husband, John Ream, they were married 54 years, and he was struggling with Parkinson's disease and had been living, living in assisted living uh, for a couple of years, but they had made the decision that when he became so frail, he wanted to end his life and he wanted to to do it. He, he wanted to make that decision. And the story that she tells is is one of, of feeling frustrated by the constraints of law where they lived in Maryland and, and the ability of doctors to help him help him realize that wish. And and basically what ended up happening is that her, her, her husband's doctor said he could not legally, morally, or ethically help him end his life. So he ended up dying by dehydration. And it took nine days, she says. And, and the thing, the quote that just immediately grabbed me is she said that at the end of his life, she said, John said he felt betrayed. I felt like when the time came, you would be able to help me was the feeling that she had with her husband at the end of his life. And it, and it's just a sad story and a window into how little control we have at the end of our lives, how we try to, you know, depending on what state we live in, whether assisted suicide is, is possible, whether doctors are able to help you make that decision, whether that's a decision that you feel uh, comfortable with, if you have a degenerative disease, if you want to be in charge, if you want to let nature take its course. But but her story really, it just hit me in just the sadness of not only that it took so many days of suffering from dehydration for her husband to finally die, but also she was going back and forth and visiting him, and, and she just missed being by his side when he finally passed. She said she's about 20 minutes late when it finally happened. So it just made me think a lot about um, the decisions we make about end of life together in our with our loved ones. And even when we have those hard conversations that we're, we can still be hamstrung by what the laws are where we live. I, I, I agree. Um, for me, it is... It's a, it's a complex thing, and I've had to face it a, a couple of times in my life with, with each of my parents and in different ways. And, and one of the things that um, I think the more time you spend with it and the more time you spend with life experience with it, at least for me, the more agnostic about it I've gotten. I think it's mm. for me it's a very moving target. For example, my father uh, for all of his life was very sort of robustly all about – um, no heroic measures ever being taken. Uh, and, he, I mean, he actually had written out this whole living will that was a, was a very funny, because he was a very funny guy, it was a very funny living will, but it was all about what he didn't want done for him. And then, you know, as he was getting closer and closer to death, he at one point even wondered if he could get a liver transplant. He was in his 80s and had cirrhosis, and he was the least likely person to get a liver transplant in the world. But that that wasn't the father that I'd known for, for 70 or 75 preceding years. Well, I didn't know him for all those years, but for my entire life— Anyway, I was uh, in my, my 40s at that point. I just had never heard that guy before. But as he was facing death, he looked at it a little bit differently. My, my mother, it was I had the opposite of experience and one that I, I do second guess myself about. She had more, always been much more inclined toward heroic measures for her. Um, but in the last stages of her life, she had Alzheimer's disease and a broken neck and was starting to get these series of infections where every couple of days she'd have to be whisked out of the nursing home to 
an emergency room where she'd lie in a stretcher in a hallway for, you know, for for 12 hours until somebody could find a bed for her. And the whole thing was just kind of agony. And at one point, I just sat down with a bunch of medical professional professionals, including the nursing home people and some hospice people. And we really started talking about taking her over towards a more palliative care model where rather than rush her to the emergency room every every time and put her through all this agony and her neck would hurt when this happened and, you know, maybe just the next infection we'll just sort of see what happens. And and I, I'm not really sure that that decision did shorten her life, but she did die very quickly and suddenly while we had her in this palliative care model. And I was sort of thinking, wow, if I went back to you know, her last lucid statement about this kind of thing, she would have been saying, no, tear the world apart to keep me alive. I have no idea whether I did the right thing at all in those situations, but it got very complicated. That's the one thing that I know, that the whole notion of informed consent really started to, you know, it really moved around. It was it was a real hard thing to put your finger on uh, in those last stages. And so I can understand why medical professionals are saying, really, you want me to be the person who decides, okay, now's the time to give him the lethal dose of, of, of whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that about because uh, the moving target, because it's it's true. I mean, at a certain point, if you say no heroic measures, well, is an antibiotic a heroic measure if you have an infection? I mean, and that that becomes the 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 kind of step by step logistical question you have to answer when someone you love is dying, and it's it's definitely not not clear cut. But what this this story did make me think about uh, a, a story on Morning Edition from from late in June, and it's just kind of the other side of the coin of this. It's a it's an incredible story. Uh, about a family in in upstate New York, Ithaca, New York, and it was done by the reporter Elise Spiegel. And it's called How a Woman's Plan to Kill Herself Helped Her Family Grieve. And it's the op it's it's the opposite story than than what Diane Reem experienced with her husband. It was a an emeritus professor at Cornell who was suffering from Alzheimer's and she had always told her family when when she got to a certain point she was going to end her life. Uh, And not everybody in her family felt comfortable with that decision. But the story that Elise Spiegel told on the radio, and it's just a captivating radio story, is is about how they made the decision, how how this woman, Sandra Byrne, she finally set a date uh, for when she was going to take a drug overdose that she ordered off the Internet. And a few days prior to that date, she had a funeral, a memorial service that she got to attend. And her family was there. Her husband was there. Her friends and family were there. And they got to say goodbye to her before she made that decision. So it, it's just it, not that any of this is 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 the better than the other. It's it's just a, as you were saying, it's it's all of this is moving targets. But I think that these are two really interesting stories about the way it can go when we're trying to figure out how to honor our loved ones' wishes, how we're trying to say goodbye, and and how even if we're able to make these decisions personally, intimately with the people we love. There's still systems and laws and and medical professionals uh, that we have to engage with, and, and figuring out how to align all those is no easy task. Yeah, no, I love the story that you just told, and it, the idea of her being able to be at that memorial service. We have to do so many of these things in in moments of desperation. So doing that in such an orderly way and in a way that sort of included her even at that level, that's fabulous. And you know, I mean, once again, not to force a through line, but really. The question that we're asking in these end of life, life times is, when am I completely not me? Uh, you know, because that mm. then when I'm not me anymore, it's really time to go. If I if I'm not 
going to rebound and be me again, then then it is time to go. Uh, well, listen, Anna Sale, you have been a fascinating conversational partner, uh, and we just look forward to watching your ascent uh, to the ranks of superstardom and, and then all the wonderful things you'll do for West Virginia uh, when that comes. <laughs> uh, but thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Colin. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. You may have read on page one of the New York Times this weekend, uh, George Clooney and the Daily Mail having kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, And it's a conversation about a famous person trying to take charge of his own narrative. All right, we're back. This is The Scramble, and we're back uh, with a different topic and with a different uh, guest now. We're excited to have uh, Ken Doctor. Uh, We talked about uh, titles last week. Uh, He is, I believe, uh, America's only accredited doctor of newsonomics. He's a media analyst and consultant and the author of Newsonomics, 12 Trends, 12 New Trends that Will Shape the News You Got. Uh, And you can uh, learn more at newsonomics.com. So this week, or actually on Saturday, uh, those of us who, who get the New York Times in newspaper form, uh, read on page one, uh, about a battle going on between George Clooney and the Daily Mail, uh, and particularly the Mail Online, I think. Uh, and the Daily Mail is a British newspaper. It is of the uh, tabloid ilk, uh, and uh, it has been uh, delving into uh, George Clooney's marriage, uh, upcoming marriage, to a woman of Lebanese descent, uh, and suggesting in print that the Lebanese mother of his fiance uh, was having problems with the wedding, and that there had been joking in the family about the death of the bride if she defied her mother's wishes, which is all completely fascinating, except apparently none of it's true. Uh, and uh, George Clooney's very upset about this, and uh, has been writing responses uh, in U.S. that have been published in USA Today. And we'll talk a little bit about what the nature of those responses are. But Ken Doctor, in terms of the newspaper business and the online news business, this is a certain kind of moment, right? It, we're, we're sort of looking at a moment where uh, one of the things that George Clooney is talking about is the way news travels to unanticipated audiences, to audiences that exist all over the world. And, and once it's out of the bottle, there's no putting it back in. Um, as, as we know in this case, uh, Mail Online took the story down, um, disagreeing with George Clooney, saying it wasn't completely fabricated, it was just inaccurate, <laughs> and took the story down. But, of course, both of the original story floating out there, cited on probably thousands of blogs, and then his reply to it very much keeps it alive and in, uh, in the Google search engine, and it'll be alive forever. And, I, and so that, that, is the, that is the way of the world today. And I wonder if from your point of view, too, one of the shifts here is if, you, if one you – know, 10 years ago, five years ago even, you know, if one lives in England and one, uh, one knows what the Daily Mail is and then you make – one makes one's own decision about how much weight to put on what they say. But if you listen right. to Brits, you know, you, you know pretty much how much weight the typical educated, thoughtful Brit – puts on the reporting of the Daily Mail. I mean, there's, there's a thing, so there's almost a trope, the daily, a Daily Mail story. Um, uh, on uh, today's Mail Online, uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z turn to online marriage counseling while on joint tour as cheating rumors continue to circulate. And, but meanwhile, my favorite, Ken, would you have a $500 butt facial 
body-conscious holiday makers <laughs> splashing out on tip-top tush treatment that promises to get bottoms beach ready. Well, those are like daily mail stories. <laughs> I, by the way, I wasn't really, I wasn't asking you whether you would have a butt facial. That I consider that your business. But um, you know, if, if you know what this is, and but the question is, does somebody reading it in Lebanon, does somebody reading it anywhere else in the world, have any particular idea what the pedigree uh, and therefore value of a Daily Mail story is? That's kind of what you're asking, right? Right. I mean, and and, and that's and, and it's very interesting with this one in, in particular, in that Mail Online is doing what others are doing. But it, they love to be able to say they are the most read newspaper site. So anybody we know in this world can publish anything, and it can go to every uh, every end of the of the of the earth. Uh, but in this case, they claim the mantle of the number one visited newspaper site in the world, and so that uh, that is confusing people here. And they're saying, well, it's a newspaper, it's a newspaper site, and even if you compare. Um, the Daily Mail in print, which is kind of uh, it's it, there's nothing quite like it in the U.S. Uh, and you're right about how um, well-educated people take it in in Britain. Mail Online is something different. It really isn't the Daily Mail online. It is a celebrity rag, much more like the National Enquirer. But they found that two-thirds of their audience is outside of Britain. That this stuff travels and this stuff, there's an endless appetite. If, if you look at that page, that homepage, what they pioneered is called the endless scroll. Yes. You cannot find the bottom of that page. There are endless numbers of celebrity stories, and they will roll through forever. Now, the only good part of this is that the Internet is its own self-checking device, but it's an uneven self-checking device. So George Clooney can say what he wants to say um, in the New York Times, in USA Today, and directly, if he wants, on, on his own blog or whatever. And that, too, will circulate all the way around the world. So that people in Lebanon, if they're using the Google search engine, and they probably are, will see both. So that's the world we're in. You can publish anything and get it out there, but also the self-correcting mechanism, as uneven and sometimes as unfair as it is, exists right side by side. The uh, and just you know very quickly, uh, Clooney's point actually is that he feels as though this isn't just a story about Beyonce and Jay Z getting marriage counseling. This is a story that that brings in a, and kicks a lot of possible possible tripwires uh, and and could put members uh, of his extended sure. family or his fiance's sure. family in in harm's way. In, the other thing that we're seeing here, obviously, is that um, on the the internet is this huge happy hunting ground for this kind of material. So we've seen the rise in in, a, in the U.S. of TMZ and Perez Hilton. Uh, we've seen uh, and, and perhaps significantly the Mail Online has recruited an executive from BuzzFeed to to run this North American operation. What does that say to you? So it, it says to me that they, they see, uh, and they see in their numbers, both their traffic numbers and their advertising numbers, great growth. And the great growth is going to be outside of the U.K. So they hired John Steinberg, for, former president of BuzzFeed, to greatly expand and really to focus on advertising. Because if you look at their numbers, it's very interesting. The traffic's exploding, but the advertising is very, very small in the United States, which also tells you that advertisers do not consider it a legitimate medium to reach customers. So they're trying to legitimize themselves with the advertising community, 
by hiring a, a, a experienced U.S. media executive. And th- this is the nature, too, uh, and this is, this is a globalization we're seeing across the board. At the same time, they're over here. New York Times and Wall Street Journal are busily trying to really ramp up their international operations. So we talk about globalism. This is, this is the reality of globalism, is that the boundaries are down for very legitimate news media and for everybody else. And if you want to have the National Enquirer, why only have it at the supermarket checkout uh, lane when you can have it worldwide, essentially, as free distribution? You can read That's it, the yeah. world we're in. Right. You can read it on your phone while you're so far yeah. back in the checkout line, the checkout line you haven't gotten to the magazine racks. Um, so, um, you know, last year I'd like to just ask you about, obviously, the Murdoch empire has just been through this tremendous, I mean, the whole thing, their whole operation got called on the carpet, got dragged into court. Some people got convicted. Other people got off. Uh, right. but, but there was, one had a sense, maybe, that, that there'd be a chastening effect on, on British tabloids. The fact that Obviously, this isn't. This story isn't about hacking uh, in, into people's uh, private accounts. Uh, on the other hand, it uh, uh, it also doesn't suggest that British tabloids have, in any significant way, been brought to heel. What are your senses of that? Yeah, I think that's the case, and I think what they what they did is they ducked. You know, mm-hmm. and there were parliamentary hearings and a lot of harumphing and in, in by uh, members of parliament. But um, this is, and, and you, can, you can look at the Clooney case, uh, Angelina Jolie is suing the Daily Mail, and, uh, and other tabloids have been uh, responsible for similar kinds of things. This becomes a cost of doing business in Britain. You're gonna, you get sued, you settle. Daily Mail has, has settled uh, numerous suits at this point. You, you can do that as, as the cost of, of business because the readership for this stuff is still very, very strong, especially in print in Britain, and it is more mainstream. So it, it, it's interesting. You look at Murdoch. I think he's 83 or 84 now. He is, uh, he's now trying to consolidate his TV empire. So even, even he has absorbed this blow. And the Murdoch, um, the, the, the influence of Hackgate, which was, which was pretty odious, um, is ebbing away very quickly. And uh, I guess, you know, you put, the, put all of it together, the public memory, whether it's about, you know, false accusations about George Clooney's fiance or real happenings such as Hackgate, all of this stuff kind of ebbs away. And if you have a business model that says, hmm, this appetite is really, really strong, we're just going to keep feeding it, you are, you're probably going to succeed at least with audience. Whether you can succeed, uh, succeed with advertising may be another question for them. So there's a, there's a business issue here, but the public appetite for this kind of celebrity trash, really, um, is uh, apparently endless. Well, as somebody with a long-running column in the Hartford Current, I'm keeping my eye on Murdoch right now, too, because apparently yeah, he uh, is, is significant uh, concerns in Los Angeles, and we know he wants the L.A. Times, and and you know the uh, the current could be uh, could be collateral damage that he would take the current to get the L.A. Times, right. but that's a, a story for another time. Buy one, get six free. All right, uh, Ken Doctor, <laughs> so great to talk to you today. I'm sure we'll have other things to talk about in the future. But thanks for joining the scramble. Good talk. Bye. We'll take a little break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about the Warren G. Harding story. But even if you've heard something about the Warren G. Harding letter story, believe me, you haven't heard anybody like the guest we have for you. In the tabloids, you know my town. I used to be 
Hey, Internet, can you show those poor Argentine players the hamster with the birthday hat eating the little piece of cake? Cheer those guys up. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Lily Tyson and Allison Ehrenreich. Happy birthday to Where We Live producer Lydia Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Millard Fillmore. For show pages, articles, and steamy letters from the Faith Middleton Show staff to Zachary Taylor's private chef, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, how comfortable is Germany with celebrations of Germany? And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we sort of saw in the concatenation of Germany's victory in the World Cup and the republication of the long-banned Mein Kampf, a kind of an interesting opportunity to talk about uh, Germany's comfort, uh, former lack thereof, and maybe growing uh, new comfort with triumphalism. So uh, that'll be the conversation tomorrow. We have some really interesting guests for you, but let's focus on today. Uh, If I were to make a list of the 10 funniest novels I've ever read in my life, there's absolutely no way I could keep off that list my search for Warren G. Harding by our guest, Robert Plunkett. It is uh, well, it's just one of the funniest novels I've ever read in my life. So there. Uh, and so when this story broke about uh, the, the the disclosure of these letters uh, from Warren G. Harding to his uh, mistress or one of his two mistresses, I thought, well, been there, done that, uh, read the book, got the T-shirt. Uh, it's also been kind of a, a small plot line on Boardwalk Empire on, on HBO. But uh, then I just, we got to wondering, what does Robert Plunkett think about this? Uh, so he's joining us right now. Novelist Robert Plunkett is joining us. Uh, as you read uh, about these letters uh, to Carrie Phillips, who we should say is not really of the two mistresses, the one that you had the greatest interest in, um, did anything new jump out at you apart from the fact that the president referred to his member as Jerry? Uh, well, he did that with uh, his other uh, girlfriend also. But the thing that really, really impressed me about the letters is that they were so beautifully written. Uh, he he really had a flow to his written voice. So I was uh, very, very impressed with him as a writer. Yeah, there is. I mean, even though the letters are frankly erotic um, and, and have little poems in them in which paradise is rhymed with thighs, um, there is, I would agree, there's, there's an eloquence to them. And, and does that comport with the mental model you had of this man as you were, I mean, the, the novel that you wrote, we should emphasize, is not set in the time of Warren G. Harding, and it's therefore not directly about Warren G. Harding. It's about an unscrupulous, miserable historian who will do anything to get his hands on a set of letters very much like the ones that we're talking about right now. But you obviously, you, you had to sort of think out Harding himself. Uh, is the guy you're reading in these letters pretty much who you knew he was? Uh, he's exactly who he was. And I think it it makes you realize that, you know, maybe he wasn't as awful as people think. Uh, you know, he, I, I'm a little bit flabbergasted that he, he's always considered such a terrible president. But, you know, this was the early 20s, and presidents really didn't have to do much, particularly Republicans. All they had to do was defer to big business, which he did beautifully. So one of the things that we know is that the existence of these letters, I mean, they haven't, it wasn't a secret. And that in in 1964, there was a historian named Francis Russell who gained access to to some of these letters from Warren Harding to to Carrie Fulton uh, Phillips. Uh, And the Harding family was able to sue to halt their publication. So the only thing that's really changed now is that the Harding family can't get in the way of this stuff, right? The, the existence of these letters was, was a fairly open thing. 
Yes, correct, correct. I mean, these were famous letters that you couldn't get a look at until now, which is what makes them so interesting. But you know, the, 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 the mistress you were more interested in was Nan Britton. So uh, tell us about Nan, and then we'll, we'll come back to Carrie for uh, just a second. Who, who was Nan? Well, Nan was the, uh, the Monica Lewinsky of her day. She was much younger than Carrie. Carrie was a middle-aged housewife who was a social equal of Harding. Nan was, uh, they, she met Harding when she was 15 years old, developed a tremendous crush on him, and set out to get him. And she did. And uh, they had a very torrid affair, uh, which went on for maybe uh, five or so years. And uh, he was very attentive to her, uh, very generous. Uh, the problem occurred when she became pregnant and had a, a daughter. So she ended up with the president's daughter. And in fact, when she Harding died and she could not get any more money out of the family or the estate. So she wrote a book called The President's Daughter. And it was one of the first tell-all books where she told her whole story, the, the seduction, the affair, the illegitimate child, and um, it was an enormous uh, bestseller back in the late 20s. And, and and, my, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and uh, th- that, uh, unfortunately, the, her ploy didn't work. She still couldn't get any money <laughs> out of them. And she kind of gave up and faded into obscurity, even though she lived until 1991. In my recollection, it's been a long time since I read uh, my search for Warren G. Harding, but that it was somebody based more or less on her that was holding on to these letters that would have uh, involved the mother and the president, right? Uh, y- yes. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, for legal reasons, Nan Britton was still alive, so we had to, I had to, you know, disguise her, uh, her true identity. Um, well, it was, uh, yeah, and as I recall, she was a lover of Christian poetry, which made it even more. Um, well, yes, she was. She by this time she was a senior citizen, and she was obsessed with uh, her poetry <laughs> class down at the senior friendship center. <laughs> it's uh, anyway. You have to read this book, but anyway. Um, but so back to Carrie Phillips for a second. You were less interested in her. She's not the model of things. But the the other wrinkle with her was that this is all kind of uh, taking place uh, during the run up to and 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 into World War One. And so there were questions also about her as a German sympathizer, maybe. Tried, trying to mold Harding's attitudes a little bit, or that maybe even she was a German spy? Can you comment on that? Well, th- this has long been the rumor. I, I certainly don't believe that she was a German spy, because as the New York Times pointed out, there's absolutely no reference to her in any of the German intelligence archives. But she was relentless in pushing Harding toward a uh, better attitude toward Germany. And um, he was smart enough not to fall for this. You know, he, he warned her that this was not a good idea and that she should really keep her views to herself. And it was actually one of the things that broke them up. Um, well, then one now has to ask, with these two long-running affairs with Nan Britton and Carrie Phillips, um, what was Mrs. Harding, what was Florence Harding, Warren G. Harding's wife, all about? Did she, is it thought that she knew about one, the existence of one or more uh, of these women? And, and what, what kind of relationship, what kind of marriage did the Hardings have? 
Well, they had a very uh, interesting marriage. Uh, I always think of her as the Barbara Bush character. Her name was Florence. She was five years older than her husband. She was more ambitious than he was. Uh, a fortune teller told her that she had an enormous destiny, which she interpreted as meaning that her husband was going to become president. And she sort of maneuvered this. She was more politically ambitious than he was. Now, as to whether she knew about the mistresses, I mean, that's always the question. You know, does the wife know? Mm. And um, I, I, I don't have the answer to that. I assume in a, in a way she did. Um, so I know that you sort of contrast Harding a little bit to Bill Clinton, that if you if one thinks the worst of Bill Clinton, one thinks not only did he have, you know, more or less exploitive relationships with women like uh, like Jennifer Flowers, but that he occasionally um, presented himself uh, where he wasn't wanted uh, and, and that there may have been uh, one or more occasions where where he really was sort of sexually harassing uh, someone like Paula Corbin Jones. That's if you believe the worst about Bill Clinton. Um, Harding seems to have not been that guy, right? I mean, just back to your original point, uh, Robert Plunkett, there's a courtliness to, to all of these exchanges. Yeah, everybody should have a boyfriend like Harding. He was terrific. He devoted tremendous amount of time to the relationship. He would write 40-page letters while sitting in the Senate chambers listening to boring speeches. He gave you money, gave you presents. He delighted in the sexual aspects of the relationship, and he he was, a, and to a certain degree, a mentor to these women. And, you know, is that an exploited situation? You know, that's open to interpretation. But um, he, he was not a predator. He, he, was, he, he really enjoyed this, and the women he had affairs with from all uh, reports, seem to have enjoyed it, too. (laughs) You can't ask for more than that. All right. Uh, Bob Plunkett, thank you so much for joining us, Uh, the author of My Search for Warren G. Harding and Love Junkie. Get this. I don't know how in stock this book is, but if you can get it, get it and read it on the beach and you will be caught uh, laughing and and snorting sand up your nose. Um, Please stay with us for the rest of the week. We do have an interesting show about Germany tomorrow. We'll be talking about competitive eating and prodigies later in the week. So uh, be with us all week. Thanks to Bitsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf for getting this show together. Dear Barack, I'm Kyone Wolf, and every night when I go to bed, I think about the two of us nuzzling under my favorite tree. You would kiss my neck, and I would tell you that I love you. I love you back. Wow. The NSA really does spy on my email. Huh. <sighs>